It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Leave the Chinese to be Chinese because they're much better at it than we would ever be. There is this European way of doing things and I think we should take it out and put it on the table and say, oh wow, we have a model. It works. Let's do that and let's do it more. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard Margareta Vestager, Executive Vice President for a Europe fit for the digital age, one of the big names here in the Brussels bubble. You'll hear an exclusive interview she gave to Politico in just a few minutes. Now, one of the big stories here in Brussels this week has been a new effort to get enlargement done. The European Commission has just issued a revamped plan for the process for taking in new members, mainly to take on board objections from France. The plan's a bit of a remix of the existing process, but the big changes are that it would be easier for the EU to freeze negotiations with candidate countries or even put them into reverse if it judged they were backsliding. On the flip side, there's the promise of extra funds more quickly if candidate countries progress towards EU standards. So let's bring in our podcast panel to discuss that and other big stories of the week. So it's a warm welcome to our uh, podcast panel. Uh, First of all, Annabelle Dixon in London. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And joining us again after a couple of weeks off, uh, another uh, symbol of East to West migration. He's moved from East Berlin to the West. It's uh, Matt Karnichnik, our Chief Europe Correspondent. Hi, Matt. Hello from Berlin. And someone who's further East than usual this week, our Paris Correspondent, Reem Montaz, who's in Krakow. Hi, Reem. We tie, as they say here. Do they really? Uh, okay, well, uh, welcome. Um, Reem's been covering Emmanuel Macron's visit to Poland. And uh, let's start with uh, one of the big topics in Brussels this week, which is enlargement. There is a new master plan, if you like, being released by the European Commission as we record this panel. Reem, maybe you just give us a sense as to whether you think this is going to be enough for Emmanuel Macron to, to give the green light to North Macedonia and Albania to begin membership talks. I mean, clearly what we've seen so far from this plan has taken on a lot of France's suggestions and positions. Clearly, Macron was able to get a lot of what he wanted into this sort of revised plan. It's worth keeping in mind that uh, Macron also is facing some internal opposition. Uh, MEPs from the French far-right group Rassemblement National uh, sent out a statement uh, outraged about sort of the uh, pre-adhesion funds that were are about to be given to Albania and North Macedonia, and they're calling for a complete uh, halt to the adhesion procedure. So we have to keep that in mind in terms of Macron's position. 
Right, particularly with local elections coming up in France next month, and that's certainly always been a, a concern, I think, of the Macron camp, that this issue gets used against them uh, domestically. Matt, do you think this is going to go down well enough uh, with Berlin? Do you think they're happy with the, the kind of revamped uh, accession idea? Well, I think in, in Germany and other parts of Central Europe, they really just want to get it done. You know, this is a process that's going to last for many, many years anyway. So if you if you change some of the, the, the details in terms of the requirements and whatever, some of the fine print, if you will, it's really not going to matter, I think, to most people at the end of the day, because what Angela Merkel wants in particular is for this enlargement to be part of her legacy. She wants to get it done. There are all kinds of strategic reasons, geostrategic reasons rather, involving China and Russia and so forth that people who are thinking beyond you know, local elections or the next national elections are considering here. Yeah, and I think we'll see you know, whether it can be done in time for the, the March summit, which comes just after those French local elections. That's the deadline, the new kind of deadline that Angela Merkel has set. So uh, you know, if it doesn't get done again, you know, we're going to have more talk of, of Franco-German differences here, even if they're moving closer together. Let's move on to... Um, I don't know what you might call post-Brexit Europe. Um, Some of our listeners uh, feel that, uh, you know, we talk a little bit too much about Brexit sometime on the podcast, but I think we're going to talk about Brexit very much in terms of the future relationship between the EU and the UK that's important and also how it affects things within the EU. Uh, Annabelle, just set the scene for us in London. How do you think the first few days of of this new era have begun? It feels to me a bit like Back to the Future. We've got some more of the kind of acrimony and and general kind of, um, well, not exactly insults, but kind of heated rhetoric going back and forward. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we were supposed to have got Brexit done. I think that was meant to be the promise during the general election. And that d- doesn't seem to be the case. But I think it was a fairly predictable start to the week. Obviously, the UK set out its negotiating plan and the EU did the same. Funnily enough, they don't match. <laughs> and um, it? yeah, who'd have thought it? But um, so I think we are going to have have a lot of sort of acrimony over the next few months. But it's not surprising, you know. The EU wants to protect its interests. It was hardly going to offer a lovely tariff-free deal without any stipulations attached. So I don't think that should be a surprise in London. That there's sort of almost this myth in London that Boris, with his 80-strong majority, is going to be in a stronger position to negotiate. Um, But it goes back to to the fact that the EU still has its interests to protect. Yes, you know, it can take Boris Johnson's promises more on face value because he hasn't got a difficult parliament to navigate. But I I think actually where Boris Johnson lands, it's going to be interesting where that opposition for Boris comes from. And, And I think ultimately it's going to come down to the economy and whether it comes to sort of later in the year, whether he looks at those economic forecasts and decides that he needs to compromise. He's not going to get opposition from his parliament. So it's a question of the sort of cold hard facts and what he calculates when it comes down to the sort of final reckoning in the summer and beyond. And one of the things then that we have to think about here in Brussels is how does the EU change now that the UK is out? And of course, in some ways, 
The UK has been kind of de facto out for a while, has not been a very active participant at the EU level at various EU meetings. But, you know, there is now no more UK representation in the council. You know, there are no UK MEPs in the parliament. And so we're going to have to see, I think, still how the tectonic plates shift a bit. And, and Reem, I guess you're maybe seeing an early example of that with uh, Emmanuel Macron's visit to Poland, um, obviously trying to build bridges there. What's the kind of thinking in the Macron camp? What were they hoping to achieve with that visit? And how do you think they did? Well, at least, you know, that's kind of one of the a part of the narrative here, which is that uh, they're trying to revive and they will revive, apparently, what is known as the Weimar Triangle format, which is a trilateral format that brings together Germany, France and Poland. And we're expecting uh, a summit meeting in the coming weeks. And so that was, you know, one of the things that came out of uh, Macron's visit to Poland, which is the first time he visits Poland since he became president in 2017. And as you know, even though historically relations between Poland and France have been rather good since Macron became president, but even before uh, things started souring, it's clear he's trying to build bridges. He's also doing some damage control after uh, really making the Polish uh, leaders very, very nervous with his uh, comments on NATO being experiencing brain death, on uh, so with his opening and rapprochement with Russia. So he came to Poland to try to make sure that he reassures them that, of course, his first and foremost concern would be uh, the EU. But he also held strong on his Russia position. And he reiterated that actually engagement with Russia was the only way forward. And Russia, by way of its geography, is European and that that was not going to change. Hmm. Matt, how do you think yeah, see things kind of changing within the EU? Do you see kind of new alliances emerging? Are the Germans a fan of this uh, Weimar format? Or, or how limited is that by the fact that the Polish government is really kind of, you know, beyond the pale for a lot of people in the political mainstream, you know, in Germany and, and across Europe? I do think that the current Polish government, because it is so ideologically driven and it is so different in nature to governments like the French government or most Western European governments, that's going to be a a huge obstacle. It will remain a huge obstacle. And he seems to have just confirmed their worst fears with this visit. France, it's worth remembering, is not a country that has suffered under Russian uh, suppression, Russian oppression. And it's not something that they understand when somebody says, well, we need, as I read in, in Reims Dispatch today, we need to keep Putin on side. Well, in their view, Putin isn't on side, was never on side, and isn't going to be on side. You know, there was there was one, I think, also very important political signal that was, uh, you know, given. For a, a day and a half, we heard Polish, you know, the Polish president and the Polish prime minister say uh, there's a breakthrough in the relationship. But, you know, at the end of the day, as soon as Macron wasn't even on his plane back to France that the president enacted this sort of new law on what, what is called the judicial reform uh, here. And, you know, that is that is another sort of political signal that says, actually, for all of your opening, there are real structural differences. Yeah, sounds like it. Annabelle, who do you think, um, the UK looking from the outside at, at this kind of new EU, do they have people they consider, you know, their natural allies? I think they've always had very strong bilateral relationship with Poland, funnily enough. Um, I remember travelling with Theresa May to Poland and they always saw them as a, a sort of friend within the EU, whether that continues outside the EU and as it's such a sort of useful relationship is yet to be seen. 
But I, I mean, I do think certainly in the last months, the E3 Downing Street is very keen to, to sort of cultivate that relationship. Right, which is with uh, Germany and uh, France. With Germany and France, exactly. It, you know, it still wants to be seen as, as one of the, the sort of big power brokers. But I think definitely over the next few months, we're going to see ministers going to all the European capitals um, trying to, to strengthen those bilateral relationships. And we'll hear a lot about it, even if those meetings were taking place before. I suspect there'll be a big sort of PR offensive to show what great mates we are with everyone. Wow, look, still. we're still talking to each other. Amazing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. that should, uh, that, well, that actually brings us quite nicely, actually, just the mention of Poland. Uh, Viktor Orban spoke yesterday at a big uh, or a reasonably big conference in Rome under the banner of national conservatism. And he went, you know, pretty much as soon as the European People's Party, the centre-right had uh, prolonged the suspension of his own party. He pitches up at this event in Rome, which uh, includes people from uh, Poland's ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, who are in, obviously in a different group in the European Parliament, also included a British Conservative MP, Daniel Kaczynski. So, Matt, I think you were quite taken by uh, Orban's uh, continuing to at least flirt with uh, you know, what a lot of people would see as a kind of far-right fringe in Europe. Well, it just underscores again this this continued fracturing of the establishment, of the political establishment. And Hungary, in the view of many people in Western Europe, is again a, a, an authoritarian state or on its way to becoming an authoritarian state. And many people think that the EPP should just stop dithering and, and kick him out. And then at the same time, we we have issues coming up like Libya, where there's continued uh, division also along these these same lines to a degree because it touches on subjects like the the refugee problem. And we, we saw that this week, for example, when Sebastian Kurz, the Austrian chancellor, came to Berlin to uh, meet with Angela Merkel. This is the first time since he was reelected. And top of the agenda was this question about the Sophia mission, which uh, is an EU mission to police the Mediterranean. And uh, some people now, particularly Merkel and and many in the EU, would like to revive it. It was suspended uh, last year. And there you had Sebastian Kurz coming in and saying, well, you know, no, this is the last thing that we should be doing. And he's going to oppose this. So it's difficult to see how we're going to you know, achieve more harmony within the uh, EU Council on these on these core questions. Mm, even with the UK gone, quite possibly. Yeah. Anyway, I think uh, Reem has to dash. So I'll let you all go. Reem, Annabelle, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's get to that interview with Margareta Vestager, the European Commission Executive Vice President, talked to Politico's Chief Technology Correspondent Mark Scott in her office on the 12th floor of the Berlimont Building, the Commission HQ. Here are highlights of their discussion. I'm struck by something you said to the European Parliament during your, your hearing. And I just wanted you to maybe expand on this a little bit. You said, my pledge is not to make Europe like China or America. My pledge is to make Europe more like herself. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we are uh, we're obsessing a little bit about how other people are. And my point is to say, well, leave the Chinese to be Chinese because they're much better at it than we would ever be. And actually, I think the same goes with, for the Americans. And we tend to forget that we have a way of working that has allowed us to be, you know, very, very successful. This combination of uh, regulation and freedom in our social market economy, that has made us uh, very uh, prosperous, 
while at the same time, sort of in a global comparison, still having a society where there is a sense of cohesion is definitely not perfect. But there is this European way of doing things. And I think we should take it out and put it on the table and say, oh, wow, we have a model. It works. Let's do that and let's do it more. It seems like, although it does work in many regards, in other places it doesn't. And part of the new commission is to look at the places where it needs to be tweaked, Mm -hmm. shall we say. How does the commission maintain those European values Mm -hmm. while also making sure you can compete in a very globally competitive world where other people have potentially different values to Europe? I think you need a combination of... um, of knowing your own uh, value, being more sort of self-assessed, trying to get more money, and of course finding ways to compensate for the things that you will not do. For instance, that you will not invite on people's privacy when it comes to data. Well, then you have to find other ways to enable people to pool data, uh, to share data, to reuse data, without compromising on the very fundamentals that you, as a citizen, you have a right to privacy. And then still stay sort of self-assured that they may compete in different ways, but this is the long-term sustainable way of doing things because it creates trust. And as we speak, trust in technology is falling. So what do you say to those within Europe who are calling for more aggressive stance, that we need to be more active in promoting a European approach. But I'm, I'm not at all uh, advocating uh, doing nothing. On the contrary, I'm, I'm advocating uh, doing quite a number of things. Uh, first and foremost, Europe is a regulatory superpower because we are uh, thorough and thoughtful uh, and very often we get it right. I think the latest obvious example is the GDPR, the Digital Citizens' Right, that is now inspiring legislators uh, around the planet. That, that may be true, but when it comes to Europe's new privacy rules, nothing much has changed in the last 18 months. There have been no major fines. It's still quite difficult to take control of your data. And mm-hmm. I think in previous interviews you said you're slightly disappointed by that. What happens next? Well, when you have rules and you have been thorough and thoughtful in, uh, in making these rules, well, what you want to do is to make them work. And I think we still have some way to go to enable people to exercise their rights. Uh, I think we need some help also from the market to respond, to say, well, oh, wow, now there is a different marketplace opening, which is uh, privacy by design. So instead of giving up on things that are not perfect, of course, continue to say, well, uh, we will enable people to exercise their rights and also, of course, structurally, take the responsibility as, um, as enforcers in, in this situation, uh, data protection agencies, to make sure that the individual is not alone in these questions. You mentioned several times the, the concept of surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. Has it gone too far uh, when it comes to not just data, but sort of the role that these companies play in our lives? If, if you look at the most fundamental, in my book, that would be democracy. I think it's, it's very important that we re-engage in the sort of physical coming together part of democracy. Because uh, what have been the trend uh, over quite some, some years now is that privacy or that democracy is being privatized. That it's, it's a message to you in your feed. 
where democracy, as it was thought initially, was something that happened in an open space. On the question of democracy, Facebook always gets brought up because of its role and how people communicate, Mm -hmm. even though potentially younger people are moving away from social media, at least in that form. They have called for greater rules on this, but they've also made it very categoric that when it comes to fact-checking politicians, they are unwilling to do that so far. Is that a mistake? Well, that is for for them to judge, uh, obviously. Uh, but as a European Commissioner, so one of uh, someone who eventually will have a role to play on what type of liability these platforms will have, is there not a role either for yourself or the Commission to at least help push them, nudge them into maybe taking a more proactive view? Yeah, but um, I think if if you call for regulation then you will have, for that to be credible, you also have yourself to sort of consider what is my own role here. Uh, and that I don't see right now. Uh, so it's for Facebook to figure out, well, what is what is their position? And it is for, for me and my colleagues and the legislature to figure out what should be the legislative framework? What kind of responsibility uh, do you have? And uh, I took note of what my colleague Julian King said uh, when he left the commission, Uh, because he had been responsible for working with a number of these platforms to say, well, there may come regulation, but of course it will be faster if we can engage with you now and that you, on a voluntary basis, enable illegal content to go away for hate speech to be diminished. And he said, well, progress is made, but his sort of final evaluation was that this was not enough and progress was slow. Would you agree with that? Well, I have not been dealing with this firsthand, and this is this is why I say that I take note of what he has said because he was dealing with this firsthand, and uh, and I think if if this is what he says after having worked with this in uh, for a couple of years, uh, obviously I think that he is right. Throughout this conversa- uh, conversation, it strikes me that we have a dual role, as is it, as part of your job at the Commission, both the competition enforcement side, but also this geopolitical commission concept, the idea of trying to create an industrial policy, particularly for digital, for, for Europe. But then I look at the things that that entails, writing p- rules for AI, coming up with a data strategy, things that some would like to see to, pr- to promote a European or European champions in many of these digital areas. How do you see that with your other hat, the enforcement role? Well, in in my experience, if you want to be a a global champion, then you have to be competitive. And this is one of the reasons why it's very important that you're also uh, met with competition at home. Um, So... What, what we have been doing this, these last years uh, is to say, well, you cannot be unchallenged, but you can be big. And, and that is the thing, because I think it's very fundamental. Most people would know that this from themselves. You don't go, sh- go shopping if the fridge is full. Why, why would you? If, if no one is, uh, is uh, pushing you, then why would you, why would you change? And this very fundamental effect is what we want to achieve with the set of rules that we have. While at the same time, as long as you're challenged, you're more than welcome to grow. But on that point, if Europe is really going to challenge in a global market, many of the other markets, frankly China, 
those rules don't apply. And as much as you can apply pressure to the WTO or maybe look at the procurement issues here in Europe to make sure that it is a level playing field, if you are going to maintain that competition, you can't just look at competition within Europe. You need to look at competition at a, at a global scale. And therefore, cynically, wouldn't it be useful to have a few more Airbuses around that can compete globally, that have had significant EU national funding to help them get off the ground? Well, well, Airbus is a very interesting example because this is a very good example of a pro-competitive merger. Because if it weren't for Airbus, well, there may be actually a, a global monopoly in the creation of uh, uh, the big planes. So this is an example of a pro-competitive merger. And when we start assessing a merger, the first thing we do is to figure out, well, is there someone that customers can turn to if the merging parties increase their prices, lower quality, stop innovating. And as long as there's someone else that you can turn to, well, then we are perfectly fine. So then what would you say to, say, an American or Chinese official or or consumer? They look at Europe in the last couple of months, this concept of technological sovereignty, the idea of trying to buttress Europe's position when it comes to how tech and digital is created and used um, within the Europe. And they look at efforts to create data pools so uh, industrial players in Europe can share and benefit from that. They look at potentially looking at, so to get quite wonky, excuse me, but sort of the market definitions of uh, competition and what, what that can entail. And they go, well, hang on, this looks a bit protectionist to me. The commissioner told me in the past that Europe isn't against US tech companies. It's about level playing field. All of a sudden, they look at some of the policies that may come down the line and go, well, I'm not sure I believe her anymore. Well, I'd say if you sort of take the different uh, instances that you mentioned, uh, take the notice of uh, of market definition. It is 20 years old. If you sit down and read it, uh, you'd have the same impression as if you read the Danish constitution that the king is actually uh, the leader of the country. This is not the case. So you have this sense, oh, okay, what they do is not actually what they describe. So better update it so people actually know how we're doing things. And second, there are new ways of forming a market. We just spoke about uh, markets that are formed when you pay with your data and not putting in your credit cards uh, somewhere. So when you have networks effect, data effects, there is another market dynamic in in how will people be affected by changes, uh, say, if, if more data is asked for a given service. So these are very good reasons to, to update the notice of, uh, of, of how we see markets. But this is not to squeak this, because defining a market is done by businesses and, and con- consumers. It's not done by a magic pin. It was kind of a disappointment to me. But I, I don't have a magic pin to define the market. But we, it's also defined by the commission, yes? If you decide that a market is X, that is how you're going to look at yeah, it. Yeah, but we don't decide it. We look at how people react uh, as long as you can turn to someone else, well, we haven't reached the border of this market. And if you can go to China, you can go to the US, well, it's highly likely that this market is global. So basically, I think just the very word market definition is misleading because what we do is that we have a methodology to take note of how consumers and businesses behave. And this, of course, should be updated. And the second thing when we do uh, these important projects of common European interest in batteries and microelectronics, 
uh, when we say we want to be able to do AI, when we say we want to do a data strategy to make data available for universities, researchers, uh, businesses uh, who want to innovate, I think our, our partners would say, well, but that is common sense. Because you lose your regulatory power if you are not yourself part of the competition in these technologies. Do you not think it's slightly part of the, an issue with the European project, not to get too philosophical, the idea of looking at the major uh, international competitors, they are one country, the European Union is not. Some of the issues you're trying to fix, creating a single market for, for services, for, for capital, these things exist in countries, but currently, although there's been a lot of work to be done and has been done on this, that just doesn't exist right now in Europe. And if you've maybe fixed those issues rather than humbly some of the esoteric Mm -hmm. industrial questions, you might be able to streamline it and you could get investment coming in from the private sector rather than coming from the EU. But but that's an excellent point. Uh, And that is well taken. uh, Because when you look at Uh, how, for instance, US tech or China tech uh, got off ground. Well, they did that because they have a magnificent home market. So, of course, we'll have to do more to make the single market work. Also, not distinguish between single market in goods, single market in services, single market in digital, because everything is coming together. But the single market is not something that you establish and then you have it. It's like having a loan. You have to move it every week, because otherwise, you know... Then the weeds come crawling in and and all of a sudden you have a small tree over there. If you do not maintain it, well, then it disappears. So I think you need both. You need to have this active, you know, weekly watching over that the single market is still there. And yet at the same time to fix market failures. Because even in a single market, these are things that no business would engage in because the risk is too big. And because that, that the societal or the shared value is so much bigger than what the individual company could ever capitalize. Thank you very much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for coming. That was Margareta Vestar speaking with Politico's Mark Scott. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening device. And you can always send us feedback at podcast at politico.eu. We appreciated your comments on last week's Brexit episode. Keep it coming. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.